Um, if you haven't been with us, the series is called Trending that we've been in. And we've been looking at different trends and we've been offering a very countercultural perspective to them. And today we're going to be talking about trends that relate to identity. You talk about something that is controversial. Uh, so let's dive right in. If you've got your uh, bulletins, if you would be so kind as to pull out this green sheet here. This is a, a, an outline that we're following, some places to write down some, some thoughts as we talk about the identity trend as we wrap up this, uh, this series called uh, Trending. So the identity trend, if I were to put language to it, which I needed to for this lesson, here's, here's what I would say that I see when I look at identity and the way things are trending in our culture. Um, if you go way back to ancient times, there was a time when identity was defined by our culture. I want to present to you today and make the case that Christianity was instrumental in helping people see that identity can be discovered. And then I want to point out some of the dangers here of this idea of determining our own identity, which is where I see our culture trending towards. So let's start with the word defined. In the ancient world, your identity was defined for you. In the ancient world, that's just the way it was. If you were a man, there were certain things that the culture said, this is who you are. If you're a man, this is, this is your identity. This is, these are things that are true about you. In the ancient world, if you were a woman, they said, this is who you are. And they described some certain things about you. They defined who your identity was as a woman. And it didn't stop there. If you were of royal birth back in the day, if you were of royal birth, what was your identity? You were a royal, right? If you were a peasant, if you were born into a peasant family, what was your identity? You were a peasant. And vocationally, you pretty much were ascribed whatever your mom or your dad was. If you were a woman, your identity vocationally is going to be what your mom was, which was a mom or a homemaker. And if you were a boy, you pretty much, there were some exceptions, but you were pretty much going to be what your dad was. That's how it was back in the ancient world with some exceptions, but for the most part, your identity was defined for you. We had an example of this um, that we kind of saw when we were at the state fair. How many made the trip to the state fair? All right, so we were at the state fair. We were there opening, opening day, and uh, Laura was um, spending some extra time in a shop. And so Emma and I, or no, Andrew and I first, we went out to go watch uh, some glass blowers. I'd never seen this before. And if this had been the ancient world, these people who were glass blowers. If you were born into a glassblower's family, what would you have probably been a glassblower, right? Because this is an art form, and they called it apprenticeship. And, and so you would learn all the tricks and the, the tips and all that kind of stuff of how to be a glassblower, if that was back in the day. Well, that got my mind thinking in terms of, um, in terms of our, our modern world, you know, um, what, how did we get where we got? Well, we got there in part through Christianity. And I encourage you to write this down in your notes. The Jesus movement, movement shattered cultural glass ceilings, pun intended. The Jesus movement was, in, it was indivisible from, from us discovering that, that you could have identity that wasn't defined culturally. The teachings of Christianity were revolutionary. I encourage you to write this down in your notes too. Through the teachings of Jesus and his disciples, people began to realize that identity isn't something that culture should simply define for you. Let's, let's go back to this idea of glass blowing. Christianity teaches that every individual, every individual has gifts and talents. Everybody. We're created in God's image, all of us, but we all have individual gifts and talents that God grants us. So I think about someone like Michael Phelps. In the ancient world, if Michael Phelps' dad was a glass blower, 
what would have been his career path? Michael Phelps' career path would have been a glass blower, and he would have had the lungs for it. But, <laughs> but he probably had some other things that would have not been well suited for glass blowing. Can you imagine Michael Phelps's intensity? <laughs> Bang! You know, you just destroy everything, right? This guy had been given gifts and talents by God to become one of the greatest athletes of all time. But in the ancient world, he wouldn't have had that opportunity because it would have been defined for you. Your daddy was a glass borer, you're a glass borer. Side note, this is why we invest so much in partners like Emmanuel Children's Home, Ace in the Cities, because we want to give people opportunities today to discover their talents and abilities and become the people that God wanted them to be. Christianity was instrumental in changing the worldview. But here's the thing. Christianity didn't only teach us that we shouldn't let culture define our identity. It also teaches this, and there's a place to write this in your notes. Let's go to the other end of that continuum that I presented earlier. Through the teachings of Jesus and his disciples, people also discover that identity isn't something that you should simply determine for yourself. This is so countercultural what we're going to talk about right now. Through the teachings of Jesus and his disciples, people discover that identity isn't something that we should simply determine for ourselves. I've said this so many times before. Christianity is a reality-based worldview. We, we deal in reality. That, that's, that's who we are as God's people. And Christianity teaches the important truth that we don't all have the same gifts and strengths and talents that we've been given unique gifts and talents and strengths. And we can develop them and we can stretch and all that kind of thing. But we've been given unique gifts and talents and abilities. Let me give an extreme example. Let's put up a picture of Taylor Swift. And then the other picture here is the guy that we got when we literally Googled who is the greatest sumo wrestler of all time. It was this guy whose name I can't pronounce. All right? This guy, he's supposed to be the greatest sumo wrestler of all time. Well, let's say Taylor Swift said, I'm going to determine my own identity. I saw on the Disney Channel that they can said, I can be anything I want to be, and I want to be the world's greatest sumo wrestler. Good luck with that, you know? <laughs> can you imagine Taylor Swift taking on this guy in sumo wrestling? And, and vice versa, let's pretend this other guy, Mr. Sumo Guy, let's pretend he says, I am going to be the greatest female vocalist of all time. And, and I'm going to go head to head with Taylor Swift and I'm going to start winning all the Grammys and all this kind of stuff. How's that going to work? It's not going to work. There's limits to what we can and, and, and can't do. We can't simply determine and say, this is who I am and expect that it's going to be that simple. It, it, Christianity did, does a great job in our culture of helping people remain grounded in reality. And there's a guy named Tim Keller who does a really great job of taking this a step further, of taking this even a step further, this idea of determining your own reality. He says you, it's impossible. It's impossible because we're community-based. We were hardwired for community. So we can't just simply assume our own identity because everything that we do, we filter through others, whether we try to deny that or not. We can say it doesn't matter what other people think. It matters to you what other people think. He, he does a great job of outlining this. Um, 
one of the pledges we make to you as a church is we're going to do our absolute best to have no weak weeks. So Labor Day weekend, we work just as hard to do excellence with our music, to try to give you substantive teaching as we do every week. And this week, we gave you a bullet and taco again. There's a lot of inserts. This yellow insert is one of them. I would encourage you to read this. Encourage you to read this by Tim Keller. Reflect on it. Talk it over with some your family or friends. Let me just give you a teaser of, of what he says about attempting to determine our own identity. He says this, despite protests to the contrary, we instinctively know that our inner depths are insufficient to guide us. We need some standard or rule from outside of us to help us sort out warring impulses of our eternal interior life. Where do people get their identity grids? You don't want to admit this as an American but you get it through our culture. You get it through your community. You get it through our heroic stories. They aren't simply choosing to be themselves. They're filtering their feelings through others. And in the end, an identity based independently on your own inner feelings is what? Impossible. It's impossible. Then he goes on to say the Christian identity creates a profound humility even as it bestows an infinite love and sense of worth upon us. Christian identity both critiques and yet completes modern desires for an identity. Here's what God does. He puts the family name on us. He puts the family name on us. And the question of identity is really not who am I? It's what? It's Whose am I? One of the guys came up after the service and he said, you know what? Um, go online, YouTube, Tim Keller Identity. He said one of the best teachings he ever saw. I guess it's out there. I haven't a chance to, to see it yet. I'd encourage you. Again, this is just a teaser, but reflect on this. Reflect deeply on this. The idea of trying to determine our own reality and, and identity and the shortcomings of that. All right. So if identity isn't something that we should let others define for us, more controversial here would be the other idea that I just presented, that there are significant problems with attempting to determine identity on our own. May I offer this thesis? And there's a place to write this in your notes. Here's my thesis. There are fundamental aspects of our identity that can be discovered in Christ. There are fundamental aspects, foundational aspects of identity that can be discovered in Christ. And that makes sense because if there is a God, and I believe there is, if this God can know all that can be known, which I believe he can, then who is better equipped to be the glass blower and who is better equipped to be the glass? But what do we tend to do as people? We say, I want to be the glass blower. And I want to shape myself the way I think I should be shaped. Let's take a look quickly here at the four trends that we've covered over the course of this series. And I want to see if you see anything in common with them. We've called the first one, my truth. The second one, my rights. The third one, my future. And today we're calling it my identity. Do you see a word that's in common with all of these? My. I was watching the news and they were talking about a book called Selfie Politics. Selfie Politics. And a light bulb went off in my head. Isn't the trend behind almost all the other trends in our culture, can it be traced to that word my? Selfie this, selfie that. Isn't that really where our culture is trending on almost everything, putting ourselves at the center? And it may I present to you that that is not in your own best interest. As counterintuitive as it sounds, 
it is in your best interest to trust God and not yourself. And I know it involves trusting yourself to trust God, but to trust him, to trust him and to walk that path that he puts. And there's a direct relationship between that and the scriptures. Here's one last Tim Keller quote for today. We need not only the Bible's prescription to our problems, we also need the scripture's diagnosis of them. And if we don't begin with the Bible, we'll almost certainly come to superficial conclusions, having stacked the deck in favor of our own biases and assumptions. That's why each and every week we open up the scriptures together. We don't just give you thoughts that we've come up with, but we really try to go to the scripture. And there have been so many times we've gone into the scripture, preparing a lesson, thinking that this is what it says, and we're like, nope, it doesn't say that. We want the scripture to really speak here. And one of the things that the scripture does, among other things, and there's a place to write this in your notes, the Bible is a Christ-centered book. Can I get an amen from those who've read it? It is a Christ-centered book that invites us to experience the benefits of a Christ-centered life. So let's open up our scriptures together. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Genesis, first book of the Bible. We're going to look at chapter 3, verse 6 to get started. I want to let you know, too, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one free today. Actually, each and every week, we have a stack of them there at the tables on your way out. Please grab one. They're there for you. Free gift. Please just take it. All right, here we go. Um, This uh, takes us back to the beginning of time. This is our origin story here as as humanity, uh, the book of Genesis. And it, it says this, Um, Let me give you a little background before we read that verse. We read that God created us, male and female. He gave the first man, the first woman, a whole wide world. That's one of the interesting things he did. He he gave these two people, as frail and fallen as we, we show ourselves to be, he gives us this whole world. And he says, look at all these opportunities you've got before you. Go and care for this world, this amazing world. There's so much out there to be found. But... There's this tree over here. Just don't eat the fruit of this tree. Look at all this before you. Don't eat the fruit of the tree. What did the people do? They ate the fruit of the tree. And there's a place in the scriptures. This is the verse we were talking about. Look at this. Genesis 3, 6. The woman saw, remember that word that the tree was good. Remember that. And she took the fruit and she ate. God said, you got the whole world. Don't eat the fruit. Well, she saw the fruit. It looked good. And she took it, even though God said, don't take it. And as more people came on the scene, they did the same thing. And I'd never noticed this before. One of the reasons I I just so encourage Bible study is it'll help you see things that you never saw before. Here's one of the things that one of my sources pointed out as I was doing my research this week, Genesis 6, 2. They said this same thing that Adam and Eve did, you see they used the same language when humanity grew. They did the same thing. Take a look at this, Genesis 6, 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were good looking and they took their wives as they chose. Now, we don't have time to try to figure out who these sons of God are and who these daughters of men are. The Bible leaves a lot of ambiguity around that. But what we do know is they did the same thing. And it wasn't good. They saw something that they wanted. They look, it looked good to them. They took it against what God wanted for their lives. And there were consequences for that. We know because we see what happens next. God calls it out as wickedness. And he, said, and he, and he points out that the people had just grown wicked. 
And they were, they, they, were, they were going their own way. They were seeing things that looked good to them. They were taking it without God's blessing. And that selfie trend doesn't end well. In contrast to where the culture was trending, the author of Genesis presents someone who was walking a very different path. We see that, that the way humanity was trending, there was another person who wasn't following that trend. His name was Noah. And we see that these stories, they, they overlap. They're, they're, they're part of the same point that's being presented. Genesis 6, 9 says this, but Noah, you see, but, this is a contrast, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man. Noah did what? He walked with God. Well, the rest of the culture was going one way. Noah's doing the best he could to walk a different path. And many of you know how this story plays out in case you don't. One last time, I brought out the flannel graph. And once again, how many of you, this brings you back? You've seen these before, the flannel graphs? Look at that, right? All right, so here's, we're going to illustrate what happened then. So Noah is trying to walk with God, and God says, I can't just ignore what's going on here with humanity. I cannot just look the other way as people are walking in rebellion to what I've instructed them to do. I just cannot ignore this. And God says, I'm going to send a flood. But Noah, I want to rescue you. You're, you're walking me. You're following me. Will you trust me? I want to rescue you. And that trust involved building a really big boat. When I say really big, 450 feet long. Is there a cost associated often with following God? Yeah, big time. No, will you trust me? Will you build this boat? Noah trusted God. He built the boat. Good thing he did. <laughs> Through the wonders of flanograph. We're going to show you what happened. There was a huge rain. And it says that these fountains of the deep burst forth. And the world was covered with. Huh? Huh? Look at that. And the boat didn't levitate. They didn't have that tech yet. And the world was covered by a flood. Covered by a flood, just as God had said was going to happen. Time passed. Dark clouds go away. Boat levitates for just a second. As the flood waters recede, boat comes to rest on a mountain. We'll just pretend this is a mountain. Oh, the door had shut, by the way. I forgot that part. <laughs> Didn't leave the door open. In fact, it was really a neat thing. It said in the scriptures that God shut them in. It was really an interesting little passage. So, boat is now on solid ground. Clouds come out. Not the angry clouds. These nice friendly clouds come out. And God says, this rainbow is a sign of our covenant. Now, this is really interesting. I wish we had more time to really explore. We'll have to go into the word covenant in greater detail in future lessons. Because a covenant is different than a promise. God's, he, he says this rainbow that I, in the sky here, this is a sign of a covenant that I have with you. And in a covenant, there's two parties that come into an agreement. And there's responsibilities with both parties. And there's consequences for keeping the covenant. And there's consequences for not keeping the covenant. And God straight up says, I don't want to send another flood and he extends this covenant with Noah. Will you trust me? 
And one of the things that's really interesting that we see right away is that even a righteous person like Noah, people are not great covenant keepers, are we? How many of you can testify? This is a place, to be honest. How many of you can testify you're really good at covenant breaking? <laughs> I, I excel at it, you know? And something that we're not going to put up here on the flannel graph is what Noah did, what he did right after the flood. Yeah, probably not put it up on the flannel graph, no. And we're not going to put what his son Seth did up on the flannel graph. It would, no, we're not, we're not going to put that up there. But what we see, even in the righteous person like Noah, and right now the kids are going, what in the world? Genesis 9, let me check this up. Um, we're just not going to put it on the flannel graph, just no matter how much you ask, all right? Um, we see that even righteous people, we can't keep covenants all the time. And then we see humanity just go off the rails again. After this flood, it, the next big account, next narrative, instead of people looking to the sky and seeing the rainbow and keeping the covenant, they try to build a tower to it. We're really good at covenant breaking, at going our own way, at seeing what we think we want and taking it apart from God's blessing and his instruction. So the reader is looking at this and seeing this pattern emerging of people doing what's right in their own eyes or not being able to keep a covenant. And you begin to ask yourself, well, how in the world then do you destroy sin without destroying people? And then we start to see something happening. We see in the scriptures the whispers of a Messiah to come. Some indirect prophecy, but also through the other stories. We see in humans things that, God, that they can't do on their own, but that God is going to do through Jesus of Nazareth. And one of the best books I can recommend to you was originally designed as a kid's book. How many of you guys have the Jesus Storybook Bible at home? How many of you would say, this book, if you're an adult, there's good stuff in here? I, I absolutely, because one of the things this book does an exceptional job of, and I put the re resource there in your notes, it does an exceptional job of showing how these Old Testament stories, they, they point to Jesus. Let me just give you a, a teaser in language that the book doesn't use. But look at this. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden. Jesus is the true and better Abel whose blood cries out for acquittal, not our condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave the comfort of home. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father in the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled with God and took the blows of justice that we deserved. Jesus is the new and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him. Jesus is a true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is a true and better rock of Moses, who, struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is a true and better Job, who intercedes for and saves his friends. Jesus is a true and better David, whose victory comes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out to the storm that we could be brought in. And it goes on and on and on. The Old Testament whispers of a coming Messiah who could do what we couldn't do. Jesus is the one that lived that life that none of us could live. He died the death that we all deserve. And through the amazing wonders of flanographs, 
Let me show you a couple things here that many of you already know about Jesus. We read that when Jesus did come, he died on the cross for our sins. He died between two thieves. And while this was happening, right before he died, there were people who said, Jesus, you're crazy. If you truly are who you say you are, if you're truly the son of God, then come down from the cross. And you can read in the accounts, the, the, these, these witnesses, they, they testified to this. They, say, they were calling him, they're saying, if you're really God, then come down. Why would you do this? Why would God do this to you? But Jesus trusted God even unto death. Now, it doesn't say this in, in Genesis, but I imagine Noah had some, some people too who were going, you're crazy. Your God told you to build a what? But one of the things we see here in this account, as well as the people who are doubting, we see some people, including one of the criminals on the cross, including a centurion, who looked and they said, no, this man truly is the son of God. And history proved them right because Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus rose from the dead. And the scripture testifies to there being 500 people who saw this. I don't have 500 people, but we got these three people and this little sheep here. And uh, we got this group of, group of guys, and they're all from Europe. They must have been, you know, coming up and, and everything. And she was there, and this girl was there too. And so was this little baby and this kid. They're all there. And they saw that Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again. And then when he rose, it said, he ascended it to heaven and he's seated at the hand of the Father. And all of these angels. So when the disciples of Jesus saw these things come to pass, not only had they heard the most miraculous teachings they'd ever heard, not only did they see those teachings substantiated with miracles, but when they saw this happen, can you see how this would rock their world? And one of the things that began to happen is these people began to so identify with Christ that they began to call them Christians because everything they did became aligned with the teaching and life and example of Christ. And they began to say, it's no longer I that live, it's Christ that now is living in me. Let me give you an example of this. Um, this comes from a real first century letter. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is a real first century letter that um, was written to people in the first century in the city of Ephesus. It was written by a man named Paul. And let me just give you an example of how Christ-centered these people were. What a big deal Jesus was. This is just one chapter of one letter, right? But you're going to see, um, just get a taste for how much Jesus was on their mind. So Bob, would you mind doing it one more time? I know you moved away from the bell here, but if you want to grab that bell, and then give one to Ron too. There's two of them there. A Emma, could you pick up that bell right there? And Laura, could you grab that bell? Here's what we're going to do. It's really simple. Don't worry. Um, what we're going to have you do is in this passage, every time you see the word Jesus or Christ, Go ahead and ring that bell. Now, <laughs> exactly, yes, very good. Or when you hear it. Now, don't worry about the hymns. There's, there's a lot of hymns in here, but sometimes it refers to God, sometimes it refers to Jesus, and you'd have to be an English scholar to figure all that out. But, but do this in your in-home, also listen in, in your own mind here, but also uh, be listening for these bells. And look at this, one passage, 
one passage. Look at how Jesus-focused this passage is. Now, one other thing I want to say about this passage is what we're about to read in Greek is one sentence. This whole thing is one sentence in Greek. And so either Paul was so excited when he wrote this, he's like, oh, you know, just, it's just coming out. And one, or I think it's probably more the second thing. Jesus was so amazing that he took the time to construct a phenomenal sentence and weave Jesus into the whole thing. Here's what it says. Remember, if you hear Jesus or Christ, go ahead and hit it. And if you think you've got confidence on the hymns, go for it too. All right, here we go. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, that was a big thing, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to his purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's Jesus thing. Go ahead there. In him, go ahead and hit that one too. Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. His blood, yeah, that's good. For, uh, forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mysteries of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, uh, things in heaven and on earth. In him, we have obtained a inheritance, having been predestined through the accordance of the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that those of us who are first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we require possession of it to the praise of his glory. Can we get a hand for our Christ counters? Thank you. Was Christ a big deal to the early church? Absolutely. Christ was a big deal. Again, so much so that they didn't say, hey, we're Christians. People said, you're Christians. I don't even know what other word to use for you. You are such a follower of this man. They were going to call you Christians. That was their primary identity, a follower of Jesus that affected everything else in their lives. And here's something fascinating to me. If the scripture is true, and I believe it is, this went deeper than what we could see on the outside through their actions. This went deeper even than what they knew in their minds. There were spiritual realities that were ascribed to these people who were in Christ. Now, we see in the flanograph what's represented, and we see that in Scripture. If we had more time, we'd actually show you the passages, but go ahead and fact-check me on this. Read Ephesians. This is all in there in Ephesians. Ephesians makes the point, this letter that Paul wrote, that Jesus was dead, that Jesus rose, and Jesus was seated in the heavenly places. So Paul writes that. And you know what he writes after that? I'll show you what he writes after that. This is from Ephesians. It follows what we just read there. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. It says, you, meaning those who put their trust in Jesus, you were dead in the trespasses and sins which you once walked. And then it says this, but God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ, and he raised us up. You notice it's past tense. He raised us up with him and seated, past tense, us with him 
in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. So heaven isn't just this future reality. There's a reality right now that's, that's part of our identity. If we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are now seated in the heavenly places. Again, do you see why this new identity just, they were all about it. This is our new identity when we place our trust in Jesus Christ. When we give up our attempts to tell the glass blower, here's what you should do, or give me that tube, and instead we allow God to guide us and shape us into the people we are created to be. And we have another insert in your bulletins that we'd also encourage you to take a look at, this one that talks about identity in Christ. Many of you have seen these types of inserts before, this type of language before. I'd encourage you to take a look at this. This is who you are if you're in Christ. These promises are are true for you if you're a part of that covenant with God. Listen to this, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, or 8 through 10. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the results of work, because you, like Noah, are going to have trouble keeping this so that no one can boast. But we are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You're one of a kind. And we don't just say that because we heard it somewhere or it'll make you feel good. We say it because it's grounded in the word of God. That you're one of a kind. You're his workmanship. You're his craftsmanship. And you were created in Christ to do good works, which only you were created to do. For Noah, it meant building a real big boat. For Paul, one of the things it meant for him was to remain single and devote himself fully to God. For Jesus and most of his disciples, it literally meant laying down their very lives, trusting God to that extent. But they were able to do so with this understanding. If I die to a lesser identity, I will be raised and seated. Not just in eternity, but now. Then I'll discover a new life, a new and a better identity in Christ. So here's our invitation. The last thing I'd encourage you to write down today. Are you placing your trust in Jesus as your Savior, the one who can save you, you can't save yourself, and as your Lord, the one that you turn to and say, okay, you're the glass blower, I'm the glass. Show me what you'd have me to do. When we see a rainbow, it's a reminder of the covenant that God made with us. He doesn't want to send another flood. Instead, he invites us to become covenant keepers. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? I'll do all these things in Christ. I've already done all these things in Christ. Will you trust me? Will you submit all other identities under my care and my guidance? as I help you discover the person that you were created to be. And here's the last thing I want to say before we give you this opportunity to respond. If you set out to do this, you're not going to have a thousand batting average. You're going to fall flat, right? Noah did. David did. All these people, all these Bible greats, they all have some asterisks with them, right? 
you're going to fall short. And one of the beautiful things that I saw at the state fair was this. Um, the glass blower was blowing this, this, this glass, and, and, and it looked like he was, he was going to just do this simple little ornament or something. And I think that was one of the takeaways that I saw from that glass blowing is we don't know what God's always up to. And it's going to take a lot of trust because this, this little thing that looked like just a bubble that he was going to grow, he, he, he ended up turning into this whole chalice. So part of it is this discovery. You might think that this is what God's doing. Sometimes he does these unexpected things. But here's the real thing I want to get to you. Um, as he's blowing this, the person who was describing it said it broke. It, it, it cracked while he was working on it. They said, you know, sometimes even in the studio, this happens because the, basically the materials don't cooperate. I can relate to that. But they said, it's even worse when you bring it outside of the studio. Because outside of the studio, here comes the wind. Here comes all these things that we just can't factor in. And let me just tell you, if you set out to follow Jesus, there's so many things beyond your control that will probably cause you to crack. This is a fallen world. And you're going to give in to temptations. You're going to have things come your way that feel too big for you, that you give into, that, that you feel like, I, I'm just not strong enough. You're going, to, you're going to be so swept up in the culture of busyness that you're just going to forget your primary identity. There's all kinds of things that are going to happen. If you set out today to follow Jesus, you're going to fall flat. You're going to make mistakes. But you know what that glass blower did when that mistake happened? Did they just throw it away? No. That glass blower took the glass back to the furnace. The glass blower kept working the glass. And the glass blower made something beautiful out of that piece. And that's the God that we serve. He doesn't give up on you. That's why he can say you're seated in the heavenlies. That's why he can say you're raised up. Because he believes in you and he's a part of a covenant. And he knows we can't keep it all the time. That was a good ding right there. That's an amen. Maybe we need to do that for you guys. That'll be your little amen buttons, you know? <laughs> but can we also make an agreement? Can we make a covenant with one another? that that's going to be our culture here too? That we're a culture when others make mistakes, that, that we don't shame them, that when others make mistakes, we don't point fingers, but instead we encourage one another, we support one another, we cheer one another on. Can we make that covenant? Ding, with us, yeah? All right. Then let's do this. Let's invite the worship band to come forward and let's enter into this um, time called communion and take some time to say, God, I'm sorry for going my own way. Thank you for forgiving my sins, dying on the cross on my behalf. Fill me with your spirit that together we can go from this place and I can live a life that honors you.